right, here we go. So I'll start by sharing one of my pet peeves is the people that still insist on driving and using their cell phones at the same time. That bothers me. And if that's you, stop it. Quit doing it. You know, just put your phone away. Uh, and, and while it's true that, that phones can be a unique distraction, I do think distracted driving has been going on for quite some time, uh, like this video will hopefully display for all of you back in the 90s. Totally worth that video, right? I mean, come on. Who remembers MapQuest? Who, who used to get around with MapQuest? I mean, that was, that was me. I've always been bad with directions. I was reminded of this just uh, the last week or so. We had uh, Jason and Courtney over at our place there, and an uh, awesome young couple that started coming to the church in the last few months. We'll see if they keep coming now that I talked about them in a sermon. It'd be a good, good test for them. And I thought about two things before they arrived at our house. Number one was, I have no idea what these guys look like. Because the entire experience of me with Jason and Courtney up to that point had been from this part of the face up. That's it. I can't wait to get rid of the masks. We have one more Sunday after this church. Hang in there, and it'll be much better. It was very, very odd, though, to invite someone over to my house and I realized I did not know what they actually looked like. Now, the second thing that I thought about was I, I hope their Google Maps works because I gave Jason my address, and I said, I'm terrible at directions and giving them, so I assume you can just plug this into Google Maps and you'll find out where we live, and that worked out just fine. So thank goodness for Google Maps. Because without them, I would truly be lost. I don't have a very good innate sense of direction. And I bring all of this up because there is a, a decided shift in direction, both in our series about spiritual renewal and in the ministry of Jesus. So we, together now, are going to shift from the Gospel of Luke as we've been going through this Gospel uh, for the past few months. So we're going to shift to the Gospel of Matthew and be in this Gospel uh, during the time of Lent leading up to Good Friday and Easter. And Luke and Matthew are slightly different Gospels with different focuses of their own. Luke was, was known for talking about Jesus being for all people. Jews and, and Gentiles alike. And while that still remains true in Matthew, Matthew was writing to a largely Jewish audience. And we'll see that focus in a few of the different details. But yet there was also a shift in direction and the focus of Jesus from teaching and traveling around, being this itinerant minister and, and moving about and, and, and preaching and doing miracles. And now he is, is turning his face towards Jerusalem. This signifies a moment in his ministry in which he travels towards the city, not just for the sake of being in the capital, but for the greater purpose of facing his trial and his torture, his death and his resurrection. This is a shift that, that changes the entire tone of his teaching and his ministry. So our story today, which will be in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 23, takes place in the city or the region of Caesar... <laughs> Caesarea Philippi. Man, I can't believe I got that wrong. Caesarea Philippi. And this is an interesting setting because it's not in Judea. This is actually a, a town 25 miles north of Capernaum, north of Galilee, where Jesus would have grown up. It was outside of Judea, and it was not a Jewish area. In fact, Caesarea Philippi was known for its many idols to pagan gods, specifically the altar and the idol to the god Pan. It was a very pagan area. And yet this is the backdrop 
to Jesus asking his disciples some incredibly important questions, which I will extend to you this morning. And it's also the backdrop in which he turns his eyes towards Jerusalem as he slowly but surely makes his way towards the cross. Would you pray with me as we continue to study God's word? Gracious Heavenly Father, we we know that this was not an easy thing for your son to do, to be obedient even to death on the cross. That it took a lot of courage and a lot of love and compassion for us to see this through all the way to the end. And God, we have sung about the truth of who Jesus is. We're going to explore that in greater detail. And I pray that no matter where we come from, no, no matter what our week looks like, no matter what our history with church looks like or our relationship with you, that we would be willing to ask these questions. We might find different answers in our heart than we expect. But God, be our guide in this. Draw us closer to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as Jesus is turning his face towards Jerusalem, he gathers his disciples around them and asks an interesting question in uh, verse 13 of Matthew 16. He says to the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is, meaning himself? And so he doesn't start by asking what they think. He'll get there in a second. He says, what do other people say about me? And the, the court of public opinion can be wild and varied, and this is no different. Certainly Jesus had a reputation. He's now been doing his open ministry for a number of years. He has been traveling all around Judea and preaching with authority and and performing miracles and signs and wonders. And people have an opinion about this guy. He is on their thoughts and people have made a decision about him. And the disciples bring some of these theories forward to him. They say, some people say you are John the Baptist, which is interesting because John and Jesus were related and their ministries overlapped a little bit because John baptized Jesus. But shortly after that happened, John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. He was put to death. But there were so many similarities between Jesus and John because they were both odd in their own way. They both traveled around preaching for repentance in the kingdom of God. And because of these similarities, many people had thought that Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life. Another popular theory was that Jesus was Elijah. Elijah. And this was a Jewish expectation that Elijah would one day return, an expectation that was fueled by the fact that Elijah never physically died. He was carried by God into heaven. And so with this idea, there was this promise, this looking ahead by the Jewish community that Elijah would return before the day of the Lord. And so when they encountered Jesus, again, operating much like a prophet would, it was an easy connection for them to say, this is Elijah. Even though we know through the gospel that Elijah and the role of Elijah was actually fulfilled in John the Baptist. And still others would say that Jesus was Jeremiah or the prophets. And this is a little bit more... um, not expected. It's a little bit more general or vague. And again, just reveals the nature of Jesus' prophetic ministry. It had been 400 years since the the people of Israel had heard a prophet speak with this type of authority. And so we should not miss the fact that many people, when they encounter Jesus, know that there is this authority in which he teaches. He is certainly a prophet. And people had made up Uh, uh, conclusions. They'd drawn conclusions. They had ideas of who he was based on whether they saw him or not. Now, I'm not going to directly compare myself to Jesus, but I find it interesting as a pastor, especially in this community, that we as a church and myself as a pastor, I, I come into contact with people. I realize that others have made a decision about me and they've never even been in the church, you know? 
saw a video here or there, and they're like, well, this guy is all about this or all about that. And I find that, I find that wild. <laughs> like, what do you mean? People that have never met me have, have drawn some conclusions about me. And the same is true as a church. You have a reputation in the community. And Jesus was also, in fact, probably even more so, figuring this out, that there was all of these different ideas about him. But then he gets much more personal and asks a profound question to his disciples. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I mean, the disciples were not just like the masses. They have followed Jesus closely for years. They know him in an incredibly personal way. They see him do the miracles, and then they go and they eat around a table with him. And then they watch him preach uh, to a crowd, and then they sit around a campfire and have a personal conversation with him before uh, they break camp and travel the next day. I mean, they are following him. They have befriended him. They know him. They have more information available about who Jesus is than any other person or any other group of people at this point in time. So what do they say about Jesus with all of that information? And it is Simon who answers because he is a person who loves to speak often before he thinks. He loves to wear his heart on his sleeve, but he's also answering what I believe on behalf of all of the disciples. I truly believe he speaks for the group when he says, you are the Christ, the Son, of the living God. What a profound profession of faith. Simon says, you are the Christ. There's that Greek word for Messiah. He knows that he has lived his whole life looking for, longing for that anointed one to be sent by God to save his people. And he looks Jesus in the eye and says, you are that man. You are the anointed one that we have been waiting for. And yet he doesn't stop there. He also says to Jesus that you are the son of the living God, which was something far greater, far more unlooked for, something much more divine. And in that backdrop, surrounded by wooden and stone idols to gods who are dead, who cannot do anything, Simon gets to look the creator of the universe in the eye and says, you are the son of the living, active God. What an incredible profession of faith. And Jesus affirms this response. And he affirms Peter's faithful role in believing and leading the church into the future. And he says a lot of things. We're going to touch on a few of them. You may have more questions than answers. We're not going to focus here, but we need to make sense of what Jesus says. Because he answered Simon, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He says, blessed are you. God has revealed this truth to you. I am who you say I am. And then on this rock I will build my church. So what Jesus does here is he uses a pun. Peter The Greek word for that is petros, which is the male form of rock. So he says, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And I I love the fact that Jesus appreciates puns, because I do too. And so I, of course, I'm going to take this opportunity to share some of my favorite puns with you, because, because we always want to follow the example of Jesus, right? Here we go. These are bad, but they're so good. What is the the last part of your body to die? This is a really morbid place to start, by the way. 
What's the last part of your body to die? Your pupil, because they dilate. <laughs> get better. What's the best part about visiting Switzerland? Anybody know? I don't know either. I've never been there, but their flag is a big plus. Wow. Okay. And the last one, last one is this. What do you call a hen who can count her eggs? A mathema chicken. There we go. Uh, I was hoping that the laughter would be louder and the groaning would be quieter, but you know when you practice this alone in your office and you're the only one laughing, it's hard to know exactly how it's going to go. So Jesus uses a pun, a play on words, but they're not as trivial as the ones that I've shared with you. He's using this for a reason, a purpose. And what he's doing, he's affirming Peter's leadership in the church that he is establishing. And if we can think back to what, what we went through at that topic in the fall of what, it, what the church is, we, we came to this passage and we recognize that the church is founded by Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ, and then he hands over the keys of the kingdom to Peter and then to the apostles and later on, as we find out, to the entire church. And this is, this is something incredible that Jesus is going to do through this church that he is beginning. And he says it's going to be so important. It will endure. It will never die. He says that the gates of Hades, or hell, will never prevail against it. And that Hades was the place of the dead. So Jesus says, the church that I am building and founding will never die. And here we are, thousands of years later. He also says, I will give you the keys, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And you might ask, well, what in the world does that mean? And, and it is fairly mysterious in a way. But binding and loosing was, was, a, was a rabbinic term. This was terminology that was used in Jewish circles for what was forbidden, where you bind something, you make it forbidden, or what is permitted. You lose something, and it is now permitted. So he has been given this authority to reveal what is true about heaven and saying this is permitted or this is forbidden. That is the type of authority that um, Jesus is giving to Peter and the apostles here. And later on in Matthew 18, we see that same uh, um, authority to bind and to loose given to the entire church. And you want to know, well, what does that look like? What type of authority is really being referred to here? We have a great example of this from Peter when he exercises this authority in recognizing the Jewish, or sorry, the Gentile converts into the church. It happens in the book of Acts. And Peter doesn't get there right away. He needs some convincing. But once he understands, God reveals to him this is the heavenly reality then he also says, now this is the earthly reality. We recognize you as, as converts into the church of Jesus Christ. That is a bit, in summary, of what it means to bind and to loose. All of this, though, pours out of Peter's incredible profession of faith in who Jesus is. So I want to ask you the same question. What do you think? Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? I do not use any exaggeration at all when I say that this will be the most important question you will answer in your life because it has eternal consequences. It is a question that also demands an answer. We can't ride the fence. We can't just think of Jesus as being a good guy and Christianity as being merely a worldview. That is not a good enough answer to the question that Jesus has asked each and every one of us. I really appreciate the way C.S. Lewis puts this in his book, Mere Christianity. I want to read you just a paragraph from this. I, I love C.S. Lewis, and this is some of his apologetics of, of, of the faith. He writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him, 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. This is C.S. Lewis bringing forth his famous trilemma, that the claims Jesus makes in the Gospels, one of which is here, as he affirms Peter's response of who he is, makes him either a liar, what he says is untrue, he's a lunatic, he's delusional about who he actually is, or it's true, he is Christ, the Son of the living God. Those are our three options, and we don't have the luxury of going through life and not giving ourselves an honest answer to the question of who Jesus is. Now, there are many reasons why you might be hesitant to answer this question. Many potential stumbling blocks that might bring you to a specific answer. Perhaps you are here this morning and, and you are a, what, maybe a nominal Christian. If a, you were forced to do a census, you would check off the Christian box because you grew up going to church. And yeah, I'll go to church on Easter and at Christmas time. I really don't think very much about God or who Jesus is. It doesn't change my life very much. And Unless things get really difficult, and then, then I'll come back to church. Well, then I'll start asking these spiritual questions again. But Jesus is asking you this morning, who do you say I am? Not, who am I to you only when you need me? Many of you will be here as a lifelong Christian. You've grown up in the church. You've never stopped attending the church. You've asked Jesus to be your Savior a long time ago. You know all the Sunday school answers, all that information that you need about who Jesus is, all that knowledge is right here. But the question Jesus is asking you this morning is who do you say I am, not what is the correct answer of who I am? I love that. We, we, we read a, a passage last week about uh, the pastor who was disowned by his father as a consequence of becoming a Christian. And part of what he said there, and I paraphrase, he says, following Jesus is not just affirming the right things about who he is. It's about following him. I know there are a lot of students here this morning. And you come to church because your parents make you. And you go to youth group because your parents make you. And hopefully at some point, it starts to come to church and you come to youth group because your parents make you and because you have friends there. But eventually something needs to change. You need to make your faith your own. The question that Jesus is asking you today is not who, it is, who do you say I am, not who do, you, who do your parents say that I am. This is an important, vital question. You need to ask it yourself. It is very, very personal. And still others are going to be gathered here this morning and you have been hurt by people claiming to be Christians. You've been hurt by the church. And a result of this hurt is you've drawn back from everything to do with Jesus or, or organized religion and, and you are afraid to explore it again. And if that's you, then I again will start by saying, I am sorry. It breaks my heart to, to hear stories of those people in the church who are designed to draw people closer to Jesus be the ones responsible for pushing people further away. And yet without belittling or demeaning any of the trauma you've gone through, I would also say that Jesus is asking you today, who do you say I am, not who did others misrepresent me to be? This is such an important question. It demands patient inquiry, humble discernment, 
and an honest answer. I'm not looking for you to give me an answer right here or to say a certain prayer or to stick your hand over your head as I pray and ask for a response. I want you to seek the truth. I want you to work out your faith in fear and trembling. And I truly believe that Stony Brook is a safe place to do this, to ask these questions, to work through these things. That The answer Jesus, uh, the question he gives to you demands an honest, heartfelt, soul-felt answer. So if you want to talk about it more, Come see me. I'd love to be able to help you work through this. It is a question that must be answered, but it must be done truly and honestly. That is the first question that Jesus asks of his disciples, and I believe for us here today. And yet there is a second question. And then Jesus doesn't frame it as such, but I'll frame it for us here. And it comes out of what is a tale of two answers for Peter. So we just read the first part of our passage and and, and Peter now knows the truth about who Jesus is. It's been revealed to him by the Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus affirms. And of course, as as we also want to answer our question about who Jesus is, this should be part of our own discernment process. We need to be guided by the Spirit, not just trying to achieve this on our own thoughts, not just our own logic or rational thinking. This is not a human endeavor. It needs to be guided by God. That was one thing that that Peter did well. That was the correct answer. And yet he was also prone to deception about the mission of Jesus. And and, and this deception was accepted by his own flesh and blood. He gave a second answer and it wasn't nearly as good as, as the first. If you want to read with me, we'll pick up in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. This is where we understand Jesus is now turning physically, emotionally, spiritually toward Jerusalem. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. (laughs) So on the one hand, Peter comes forward with this beautiful profession of faith. And on the other hand, he says something and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Like this is a bit of emotional whiplash going on here. These two things are are juxtaposed to each other. But of course, Peter means well. He means well. When Jesus starts to reveal the trauma that he's going to go through, the, the, the torture that he must endure, the death that he must undergo, even though he does talk about his resurrection, Peter and the apostles are horrified. They love Jesus. They've placed all their hope in him. And from this earthly perspective, it does not make sense. And so Peter comes and says, far be it from you, Lord, which is a Greek idiomatic saying. What did you just call me? No, it's an idiomatic saying. Literally, may God be merciful to you. Meaning, God forbid. May he have mercy. May God never let this thing happen to you. He's not rebuking him as far as like correcting him. He is just saying, I love you and I don't want to see you go through this. His response comes from a good place. He loves Jesus, but it also comes from a human place. Peter did not fully realize the mission that Jesus was on. His perspective was limited. He was actually being deceived. And we see that in Jesus' harsh response. Get behind me, Satan. And again, I'll remind us of something we learned last week where Jesus looked forward to the cross and said he was distressed until that moment came. And now Jesus is turning his heart towards Jerusalem and that distress is increasing. This is not something he is looking forward to. This was an active area of temptation for Christ. 
the place where he would be the weakest. It was extremely difficult for him to anticipate the cross. This was a hard, hard thing to do. So if there was any area in which Jesus would be open to temptation, it would be this. I think back to one of the first sermons we preached in this series in Luke 4, the story of when Jesus was, uh, was being tempted by the devil at the beginning of his ministry, right before he started. And at the very end, in, uh, in Luke 4, I believe it's uh, verse 13, it says that Satan left after he couldn't tempt Jesus. He left and waited for an opportune time. An opportune time, and he waited years. And what do we have here in our story today? We have an incredibly opportune time. This moment when Jesus is feeling weak. That area that he wants to avoid more than anything else because he is fully human and he does not enjoy this. He finds it incredibly distressing. And so there is a work here of the devil to come and circle back and try once again to see if he can derail Jesus off of that incredibly important mission that God the Father had put him on. And that is why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He's responding both to, human, to Peter, who is using his human perspective and not getting the full picture. And he's also responding to Satan, who is using this as a good and opportune time to strike, just as Luke promised he would once again. So is he calling Peter Satan? Well, maybe. I think he is addressing them both. But then he admonishes Peter in particular in verse 23, saying, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. When you were thinking of things of God, you knew who I was because it was revealed to you by God. But when you are thinking only from a human earthly perspective, you, Peter, are missing the point. Because it made sense from a human perspective to not want Jesus to endure the cross. Why would we want to see our friend have to go through that? Why would we want to see the long-awaited Messiah die at the hands of Roman oppressors? It did not make sense. But from a divine perspective, and now we on the other side of the cross know, God was working something out so much greater than Peter could ever have imagined. So much more was going on. When we experience trouble and loss, when we are confused about the things that are allowed to happen in this world, are we still able to trust that God is doing what is best? That his perspective, his information, his justice and his mercy and his love are greater than we can ever fathom. We should never hold him accountable to our own way of thinking. And that second question becomes one that I think was given to Peter that I would give to you today. What do you set your mind on? The things of God or the things of humanity, of flesh and blood of this earth? Now Paul bridges the gap between our faith in Christ, answering who we say he is, and the newfound ability in Christ to set our mind on the things of God. This is what we read in Colossians 3, the first four verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the call. Once we have, have again, professed our faith like Peter did, we are our new creations. We have this ability to renew our minds, not to, to stay focused on the here and the now, but to lift our heads up, to focus on who Jesus is and to live according to that 
great and unchanging truth. We can focus on him and lift our head above the noise and the worries of the world. For Peter and for us, this sending our mind on things above must be more about what we choose to focus on and not just about what we avoid focusing on. So let me explain this a little bit. I'm going to turn to Philippians 4.8. It's a very common passage. Also, just a, a few pages before here, given by the Apostle Paul, talks about, again, what we should think about. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, both the passage in Colossians and Philippians, I will say this, that the church has done a very good job in my experience of teaching me what these things are not, what I should not be thinking about. And as a young man growing up in the church, these two passages have been quoted at me, and 90% of the time, they have been mean to meant uh, only, do not look at pornography. Stay pure. Think of what's pure, meaning don't think of what's impure. And the other 10% of the time, secular music, right? Like I throw it in there every once in a while. And that's, those things are true. Those things, uh, well, there's a lot of nuance in there, but should we look at purity? Should we look at sexual purity? Absolutely. But is that the only thing? Is that the full extent of what these passages are saying? No, we do a great job of saying, these are the things that are not pure. Don't think about them. But what should we be thinking about? That is the call of Paul in these passages. That is the teaching of Jesus to Peter. He says, lift your eyes up. Think about me. Think about these things. What does that look for us today? And as we get close to our conclusion here, as the worship team comes back up, I want to give us a few examples of what we might be thinking about when we set our minds on the things of God. What should we be thinking about? Think about the truth of who Jesus is and how much he displayed his love for you. We need to think about those around us who are hurting and in desperate need of an expression of this love. We need to think of creative ways in which we can use our wealth to meet real needs in our community. We need to think about the joy that is found in creating close personal relationships with others, even when we have been hurt before and we might be afraid to do so. And when the worries of the world close in, we need to think about the promise of life that steals the sting of death and overcomes all of your fear. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Lord Jesus, you've given us two simple questions that are going to take a long time to answer truly and honestly. But we know that you long for these answers. You know that you have asked each and every one of us today, who do you say that I am? And out of a true response of that, you say, what do you set your mind on? So God, I pray that we would trust in the fact that you are the Christ, and that you are the Son of the living God, and that you are the one Savior that we long for and need. And that because you are all of these things, we have this unique opportunity to lift our eyes up on you. Let us spend our energy, let us spend our day 
focusing on you and living in response to that. We pray this all in your name.